If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you now to turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to continue on. I want to pray for us before we jump into God's Word yet again. I just don't think you can pray too many times in a church service and say thank you to God and ask Him to intervene. So I'm going to do that. God, we love you. Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, Father, we thank you for your perfect will. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your perfect, humble obedience. And Spirit, we thank you for your power and your presence in our life. Thank you for the power and presence, not just in our individual lives, but in the, the life of this church, in which uh, you are doing amazing things, miraculous things. And Holy Spirit, uh, as Moses prayed in Exodus 33, uh, pleading with God, don't send us up from here if your presence doesn't go with us. Uh, Moses knew, as we know, that there's nothing else that will distinguish us from all the other peoples on earth. God, there's nothing about our facilities and our programs. There's nothing um, even about our ministries that are victorious or glorious in Christ if your presence isn't here, if your presence doesn't go with us. So we pray this morning, I pray this morning, God, Holy Spirit, that you would be present in our hearts. Uh, strip away the garbage. Um, take the jackhammer of the word to our stone hearts. Peel them open. Allow us to receive the beauty, uh, the promises, and the covenant of God that we would go forth from this place conformed into the image of Christ, uh, taking the battle to the gates of hell for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we jump into Matthew 9, there's a couple of background slides. If you've been at Poetry for a while, if you've been here for a little over a year, maybe uh, roughly about a year, these should resonate with you. If you're listening online to this sermon, um, you can go back and look at these. The first is Proverbs 22.4. Proverbs 22.4. And I've preached here from this pulpit twice now at the beginning of both years. Um, both calendar years through the book of Proverbs. Because Proverbs is all about wisdom. It's about life skill. And as Christians, if we don't have life skill, if we don't have an intimate relationship with Christ, if we don't have humility, then we have nothing. Proverbs 22.4 reads, Through humility, comma, the fear of the Lord, comma, so it's a parenthetical thought. Humility is equated with, synonymous to, the fear of the Lord. Through humility, the fear of the Lord, come riches and honor and life. Proverbs 22.4. You may have a version that reads a little bit different from that, but I just want you to consider the beauty and the truth of that rendering, that translation, as we move forward. That the fear of the Lord is synonymous to, equal to, humility. So when you see in Scripture the fear of the Lord, think humility. We did an entire sermon series called Connecting Dots. You can find that through our website. 
And it was all based on Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord, and that would be humility, right? Humility is the genesis, the beginning, the starting place of intimacy. Most translations render that knowledge. But we're not talking about trivial pursuit. We're not talking about jeopardy knowledge. We're talking about intimacy with God. That the fear of the Lord, humility, is the genesis, the beginning of intimacy with God, of life skill, wisdom, and of correction. See, but fools despise all this. Maybe you find yourself sitting in the pew right now, kind of leaning back, sort of kicking back, getting a little a little relaxed, sort of like, you know, I'm really bored already. This guy hasn't even started with. And this verse should speak to you in this moment. See, because there's no humility, there's no desire to have intimacy with God, there's no wisdom, and you're not open to correction. So Scripture, the Word, Jesus would say, you are a fool. Ecclesiastes, we did an entire sermon series on this, and we came to the end of Ecclesiastes, and it said, the conclusion of the matter, everything that teachers say, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God. What is the fear of God? It's humility. The conclusion of the matter is be humble. Fear God. Keep His commands. For this, being humble, is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man. Be humble. The scripture verse that we read this morning from Micah 6.8 He, God, has shown you, O mortal, what is fragrant, what smells good, what is tobe, what is good, what is oh sweet goodness unto God, what is fragrant. What does the Lord require of you? What does that smell like? What is that? To act justly, to love obedience, and to walk with your God, Micah 6.8, to be humble. I just wanted to set the table as we dive into Matthew chapter 9, kind of give you that as an appetizer for the meal. Humility required. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, actually it's as Jesus departed from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed. While he was reclining, that's Jesus, at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's start with verse 9. In the slide that's up here, it says, Jesus departs in humility. Jesus departs in humility. That word, that verb, paragon, from the, word, the verb parago, 
departs in. We're not talking about a dude. We're not talking about Gandhi or Buddha or Confucius or some religious mystic. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus departed from one place where he was doing ministry and he went on to another. You may be saying, what's the big, pastor man? What's the big deal? Why are you dwelling? Why are you lingering? Why do you tarry on the fact that Jesus departed? I'll tell you why. Because Emmanuel, Jesus, didn't just depart from there. He departed from heaven. He departed from the presence of the Father. And he left that. And he came down here to advance the kingdom of God. To me, as I read this, and I see that Jesus would even bother to be invested in human beings blows my mind. It's mind-boggling. You might say, well, that's great for you, but it's not really relevant in my life. It doesn't really speak to me. It doesn't really do anything for me because, see, I'm dealing with real-world problems. I've got a business. I've got kids. I've got a family. I've got a mortgage payment. i got real stuff. And Jesus, this kind of invisible guy who maybe or maybe not came down from heaven, maybe or maybe not did all the things that the Bible says, maybe or maybe not went back to heaven to prepare a place for us, maybe I don't see him. I don't see him doing anything about my problems with my kids and my business and my job. See, the problem is is that you've made it all about you. The fact is, is that God Emmanuel, God with us, he departed and he came down to advance the kingdom of God for you. To advance the kingdom of God for you. And so when I started to read this week and I said, And Jesus departed. He went on from there. He did that for me. See, because he was on a mission and there was no one, nobody, no thing that was going to stop him. And if that doesn't kind of get down inside of you and cause you to say, Yes, Jesus, thank you. For being a God who departed heaven, who departed from one place and went to another to advance your mission to go to a cross, to be strung up and nailed there so that you could pay for my sin. If that doesn't do anything for you, I'm going to pray for you. Jesus departed. Maybe you should go back to Philippians chapter 2. Where the Apostle Paul, the man who was formerly Saul, who is a murderer and a zealous religious Pharisee, that he had an encounter with the risen Christ, the one who departed from heaven, the one who spoke to him on that road where he was going to persecute Christians. And he showed up. And Paul wrote about, and he said, Your attitude, church in Philippi, you Philippians, your attitude should be, should be. He's not saying, congratulations that it is. He's saying, it should be. It should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. 
who being in essence equal to God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be struggled for, something to demand. You're not sending me down there, Dad. Why don't you go? Instead, he said, yes, Father, send me. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who departed from there and went to there. It should be. But instead, we're filled with pride and anxiety and resentment. We don't want to be bothered with inconvenience. You know what, Jesus? I hear what you have to say in the book. But see, the problem is, is that it's really inconvenient for me to actually live out my faith, to actually be bold, to actually allow your spirit to guide and direct and be the only thing that differentiates me and your people from everyone else on earth. It's a little inconvenient. So I'm going to leave that to Pastor Boy up there. I'm going to let him do the job that when I write my check and I drop it in the box, I can say, that's Pastor Boy's job. Jesus departed from there. Humility is required, folks. See, Jesus sees true humility. I don't know about you, but when I read this, it blows me away. It says that he, Jesus, saw a man named Matthew. So what? He saw a pathetic, vile, disgusting, sin-riddled man sitting at his worthless little tax booth doing his menial little task in life as a vapor coming and about to go and Jesus stopped and he saw him. Do you realize that Jesus sees you? I don't know about you, but when you read that, Jesus saw Matthew... Not with his eyes, but see, it's the Greek verb harao. Not blepo. It doesn't mean that he saw with his eyeballs. It means that he discerned, that he perceived where Matthew was. And where Matthew was, just like that sermon that I shared with those kids just a moment ago from Luke 18 about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus saw that Matthew was like that tax collector that said, God, with my eyes downcast on the ground, have mercy, demonstrate your loving kindness, your covenant loyalty, even unto me. Not because I deserve it, God, but because you promised that you would fix the brokenness in me. And Matthew is sitting in a tax booth and Jesus sees him. Emmanuel sees him. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, but in Hebrews 4.12 it talks about the word being living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it actually is able to judge between our thoughts and our attitudes. 
The Word. And if you go into John, the Gospel, chapter 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word is Jesus. He's the eternal Logos. So in Hebrews, when the author writes the Word, you should put in there, Jesus is living and active. He's not a fable. He's not a story. He's not a character. He is the Word, alive and active. And see, when He looks at you, He looks the same way He looked at Matthew. But what does He see? Horao. What does Jesus see when He looks at you? When that Word that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that is able to divide between our thoughts and our attitudes, does He see someone like Matthew in humility that cries out to God, Oh God, have mercy on me. Or does He see someone who's going through religious attitudes and behaviors? I'm going to church because it's kind of the right thing to do on Sunday. That's what everybody down here in the South does. We don't really believe it, but we all just kind of go through the motions and we sort of have this polite form of religion where we smile at each other on Sunday, but we don't really have any power. We don't really impact our families. We don't really impact our culture. We don't really change anything. What does Jesus see when he looks at you? Harao. Jesus saw Matthew. He saw Matthew and he called him. It goes on to say, he saw him sitting at the tax office and he said to him, Matthew, follow me. See, Jesus only calls the humble. Synagogues, mosques, temples... Even churches all across America, all across the globe today are overflowing with religious people of no value to God. No value to God because of their attitudes, not because of in whose image they were created. Inherent value is exponential. It's infinite being made in the image and likeness of God. But see, what we do in our pride, in our arrogance, in our lack of humility, what we actually do is we grieve the Holy Spirit. And there's no value. Jesus sees no value in people that are overflowing. Their cup is overfilled, depraved, unrepentant, prideful, zealous, dead. No pulse. Dead. Jesus only calls the humble. He called Matthew. And when he called Matthew, Matthew actually responded. It says right at the end of verse 9, So he, Matthew, got up and followed him. Again, maybe that doesn't seem very profound to you, but it seemed very profound to me. That disciples actually respond and they follow They follow Jesus. And what we say is, I don't really want to follow you, Jesus. I don't really want to follow you. I don't really want to follow the things that you say in Scripture that I should do and what my life should look like and who I should be. I don't really want to follow that. 
See, what I really just want is I want to ask you into my heart through the magical prayer. I want some pastor to affirm the fact that I'm good. He's given me two thumbs up. Pastor said I'm good. I prayed the magical prayer. I sang the song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. So therefore, I'm good. I'm going to hang on to all of the promises of Scripture. I'm going to bank on the fact that I am now in the priesthood of believers. There's no real evidence of it. There's no real fruit of the Spirit in my life. But that's all secondary. It doesn't really have to bubble up and overflow and actually be demonstrated in the world. I don't really have to have humility. I just want to have a friend in Jesus. Is there change? Is there transformation? Is there evidence of regeneration and the fruit of the Spirit? Or is there no humility, no submission? Is there anything different in your life? goes on from there in chapter in verse 10 it says while he Jesus was reclining at the table in the house y'all think about that for a minute Jesus Emmanuel God almighty the creator of the heavens and the earth the one who spoke the cosmos into existence that Jesus would go to a dinner party and dine with what does it say? Tax collectors and sinners. God Almighty would dine. I want to ask you for a second. Just kind of put your pen down. Close your eyes. I want you to think about that picture. Jesus, departing from a place, calls Matthew. Matthew responds. He's following Jesus. They go into this day, and Jesus doesn't get up and preach a sermon. He reclines at a table, in a house. And in that house, close your eyes, and I want you to picture who was there. Tax collectors and sinners. Who was there? Go ahead and open your eyes. I don't know who you pictured, but I pictured scum. I pictured bottom feeders. I pictured vile repulsive, repugnant, prostitutes, tax collectors. And right there at the end of the table, I pictured me, Kevin Kelly. And that Jesus would come and he would recline and have dinner with me. See, we make two fatal errors as Christians. When we read that, what we do is we never envision ourselves, error number one, we never envision ourselves at that meal. And see, if you never envision yourself at that meal, then you can't envision yourself at the wedding banquet in Revelation 19. You can't picture yourself at the wedding banquet of the Lamb, married to his bride, dressed in fine white linen, the righteous acts of the saints, because you can't be a saint if you never recognize the fact that you were a sinner. If you've never repented, if you've never turned your back on your sin party, you're not going to be at the wedding banquet. 
If when you closed your eyes, you said, oh yeah, I know the kind of people who were there. Kind of like that guy at my job. Kind of like my neighbor. Kind of like that person that I used to know back in the day. Yeah, those were the people there that Jesus sat with. If you never pictured yourself there, then don't picture yourself at the wedding banquet because you're not going to be there. Error number one, you don't envision yourself at that meal. Number two, people assume that Jesus is cool because he's cool with our sin. I remember when I was a lost person, there was a movie that was made about this, and one of the scenes in the movie said, you know, I like to picture my Jesus as, and then the people around the table all go through saying, yeah, I like to picture my Jesus as this thing. Doing this, being this kind of Jesus. And the other person would say, yeah, well, I like to picture my Jesus kind of being like this, man. Because he's cool with, you know, he's cool with, you know, bikers and he's cool with drug addicts. And Jesus is cool with all that stuff, man. No, he's not. See, the first error that we make is we don't picture ourselves at that table. And the second one is, is that we picture Jesus being okay with our sin just because he came to redeem Sinners. He loves us because we were created in His image and likeness. But He hates our sin. It's detestable. And the fact that Jesus was humble enough to recline God, Emmanuel, that He would recline at a table with and for you, that's humility, folks. Jesus dines in humilities. As it goes on in verse 11, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, see, they don't even have the guts to go to Jesus, they asked his disciples, Why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I want you to know that, see, the same verb that Jesus, it says that Jesus saw Matthew, the Pharisees saw harao, they perceive the problem is is that their perception is all messed up. Their ability to discern what is good and what is holy and what is true is fractured and broken in their sin. They ask why. Why do you? Why would you, Jesus? Why would you do that? And the reason is is because Pharisees are blind. They don't see themselves at that table. See, they don't know, they don't recognize, they don't perceive Jesus. They don't know His mission. They don't know His vision. They don't know His motives. And they renounce His authority. Why? Why would Jesus, why would your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees are blind. This is another one that just blew my mind. I wonder how often you as a parent, you get frustrated with a child. And I'm going to be the first one to raise my hand. Connor sometimes drives me nuts. I'll ask him to do something. I'll say, Connor, can you pick this up off the table over there? And it goes in the other direction. And I say, Connor, I said the table. There's only one table in the kitchen. 
can you get that thing that I asked for, my phone that I'm typically losing and can't remember, can you go and get my phone off the table? And he looked up at the ceiling the other day. And I was like, Connor, the table! And I got frustrated. And after Connor went over to the table in his sweet little spirit and got my phone and he came back, and I was convicted by the spirit, once again, I'm a sinner, redeemed by grace. And I didn't demonstrate the patience and the long-suffering of God to my little boy who I love. Jesus responded in humility. This is God! And when he has these religious nuts, these people who think they've got it all figured out, and they come and they happen to be at this dinner party, not because they want to learn, not because they want to be transformed, not because they want to know, but they want to point their finger. Why? Why does your teacher act like a fool? Why does he do the things that he does? And Jesus responded in humility even to them. Shiloh, the one to whom all tribute and authority belong from Genesis 49.10, the serpent crusher from Genesis 3.15, the one who's been anticipated all throughout Hebrew Scripture, who comes on the scene in Matthew's Gospel as the new Genesis... And these Pharisees who have been opposing him from the beginning, they say, why? Why? And Jesus demonstrates humility and patience. But there is, I want you to note this, there is an expiration date, folks. There is an expiration date on Jesus' patience. Not on his humility, that's eternal. But see, there is a day of judgment that's coming. In the book of Job, one of my favorite parts is when Job stands there and he's calling out to God, why would you do the things that you've done? How could a righteous God, I demand an audience with you, get over here. And then God shows up in this ominous presence and he goes on and he, for chapter after chapter he says, were you the one? Who did all of these amazing things in creation? Did you set the boundaries? Did you create the atmosphere? Did you make it so that it would rain? Did you make it so that the crops would grow? Did you do any of that stuff? How dare you question me? And I tell people that I love, I paraphrase it, I say at the end of it, I picture Job standing there with his hands in his pockets going, my bad. See, what Job said is, surely I spoke of things I didn't understand. That's repentance. And see, when Jesus says something to these Pharisees, we don't see any evidence of that. Jesus responds in humilities, but Pharisees refuse to learn. But when he heard this, he said, those who aren't well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. I desire mercy. We talked about that a little bit earlier. That idea of mercy. That's eleos in Greek, which comes from the Hebrew word kesed, which means covenant loyalty. And I think when we think of mercy, we think of something that's a much more diminished, inaccurate 
pale shadow of what mercy really means. God's covenant loving kindness. When you think of God's covenant loving kindness, what you should picture is if you want to write this down, you can go back and you can read it, is from Genesis 15, 17, when Abram asked God, how am I going to know that you're going to do all of the things that you promised? And God says, go get me a bunch of animals, cut them in half, make a blood path, and instead of you and me both walking through that blood path, which is the custom, just me, just the smoking fire pot of God, goes through those pieces. And we say, so what? I don't know what a smoking fire pot is. I don't know what a blood path is. It was a covenant that God said, I know you're going to mess up. I know that you're going to betray me. You and your descendants, the Israelites, the people of the church, people who call themselves Christians, you're going to mess up. But here's the deal. You don't have to walk the path with me. See, because if you walked it with me, when you make a mistake, what you're saying is, I'm going to die for my mistakes. And instead, God went through the blood path. And God said, I'm going to die for your mistakes. I'm going to die for your mistakes. The person of Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross, and he's going to pay the penalty that you and I never could. Pharisees refuse to learn. I don't know, maybe you've read the, the book of Hosea, another picture of faithfulness and redemption. Hosea is a great book about this man who's a prophet that God tells him to go and marry this woman who's a prostitute, Gomer. See, that's a picture of God. Is it God, our perfect and loving, holy God, that he's married to a whore? He's married to us. In our infidelity, in our idolatry, in all of the things and the cravings of the flesh that we chase after every minute of every day. In our worry, in our anxiety, all the times that we say to God, I don't trust you to have this. I don't trust you to take care of my little baby boy. I don't trust you when my daughter goes off to college to take care of her. So I've got to step into that. See, because God, I trust you with my eternal salvation. But when it comes to things of the world, I'm going to have to take care of this because you're up there on your throne. See, that's a Pharisee mentality and Pharisees refuse to learn. And Pharisees refuse to submit. I want you to know that I spoke on this a little bit on Wednesday night. And this is probably when people say, Pastor, you stepped on my toes. This is the slide. This is the slide. This is the part of the sermon where your toes are going to get stepped on. So I hope you wore some steel-toed shoes. We're Americans, right? We're Americans! And that's a good thing, except that Americans are filled with pride. You go over to Europe and you talk to people and they say, where are you from? America. And they don't want to have anything to do with us. They don't want to have anything to do with us, see, because Americans and America was birthed out of this revolution thing. We say, well, it was a good thing because taxation without representation and, you know, all of that stuff. 
That's what we were birthed out of. And I'm not anti-American. I love America. I love our president. I submit to his authority. But see, the problem is is that when you're a nation and a people that are birthed out of a revolution and a spirit of independence, you have a spirit of independence. A sense of entitlement wired into you from the day that you're born. I'm an American. Independence is my right. It's in the Constitution. You know what your birthright is, folks? Psalm 51.5 Surely... I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Your birthright, our birthright, is hell for all eternity. That's our birthright. It's not the pursuit of happiness. Jesus is the one who died for our joy. And see, we're not just Americans birthed out of a revolution and a spirit of independence, but we're Baptists, right? We're Baptists. And we're so proud of it, we herald that. I'm proud to be a Baptist. Go out and ask people in the community. Without telling them who you are, what church you go to, say, um, what are your thoughts on Baptists? And be ready with a notebook and a pen, because they're going to tell you judgmental, rigid, prideful, arrogant. They're going to give you a whole laundry list. See, so we're independent as Americans, we're prideful. See, because Baptists, we believe in the autonomy of the local church. Ain't nobody going to tell us how to do church. Nobody. There might be a state convention out there, but they don't tell us. They don't tell us what to do. See, we're not just Baptists, but we're Southern Baptists, right? We're Southern Baptists. If those northern Baptists, if nobody's going to tell them what to do, then by golly, nobody's going to tell us what to do. I'm just saying this, and I want you to get your toes ready. See, because we got a problem with authority, folks. And if you don't want to admit that, see, you're falling into the category of Pharisee. Pharisees didn't want to submit to Jesus, God Almighty, Emmanuel, Messiah, Savior, Redeemer of the world. And we say, well, submit up to, up to what? Up to what point? See, when things don't go my way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my ball from Poetry Baptist Church and I'm going to go home. I'm going to take my tithe check. I'm going to go deposit it in somebody else's bank account. I'm going to show you. We're prideful. We're arrogant. We look at it as a sense of, well, it's my job in the church. See, priesthood of believers. And I was talking with someone this week and I said, you know, the, the challenge, the difficulty that I have from Peter's letters and people just kind of clinging to that idea of the priesthood of the believers. See, it comes with prerequisites. It comes with prerequisites. Are you a repentant individual? Do you picture yourself at that table, Jesus dining with sinners? Or do you just see yourself at the wedding banquet with the Lamb? If you don't see yourself at that table, then I would challenge you and I would say, I don't think, I don't think so. My job is to challenge authority. My job at the local church is to insert my opinions. My job is to advance my agenda because I know better than anybody else up in there. 
And if those fools would just come alongside me, they'd figure it out. And when things don't go my way, my job is to gossip, to rebel, assume, and if necessary, to quit and go down the road. I want you to look at this passage of Scripture from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over you. They watch over your souls and those who must give an account. To this end, allow them to lead with joy and not with grief, for that would be of no advantage. I was talking to somebody on the phone this week, and I said, you know, I've been the pastor for coming up on two years. And I said, the number of people who have come alongside me and not said, Pastor, here's what you need to do. Pastor, here's my opinion. Pastor, here's my advice on how things should get done. But people who said, Pastor, how can I pray for you? That I could fit them all on one hand. I just wonder, as we look through Matthew chapter 9 and we see the errors and the sin of the Pharisees that are those stinky feet and not that fragrant aroma of humility, I wonder what category do you fall in? As we prepare for our time of invitation today, I'm just going to put up one last slide. One last slide. We jump the gun. This is from Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13. If one does not repent, and remember that means to turn, if one does not repent, God will sharpen his sword, he has bent and strung his bow, he has prepared his deadly weapons, he ordains his arrows with fire. Maybe you're one of those people that says, I don't really like that kind of God. He sounds a little harsh. God is the same as He was, is, and forever will be. I wonder, do you have a spirit of the repentant tax collector of Matthew? Do you have a spirit of that of a Pharisee? Someone who refuses to learn, refuses to submit, constantly questions why, one does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent and strung his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He ordains his arrow with fire. So today during this time of invitation, maybe there's something that you need to repent of. Maybe there's something in your life and in your heart that needs to be drug into the light. So I'd ask that during this time that you would respond, that you wouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit, that you would come forward to pray, to confess, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit would have you do. I just ask that you would come.